Good morning. morning. And tonight, Happy New Year. (laughs) And hopefully uh, 2023 will be another banner year for the advancement of the gospel and bringing the second coming of Christ closer. So keep us in your prayers this year. Uh, We do have, as we start with prayer this morning, we have one prayer request, Andrea and Phil Simulus. Andrea is the daughter of uh, Kathy and John Ritland, and uh, their son-in-law on Tuesday of this week were in Las Vegas taking a tour of the Grand Canyon via helicopter, and as it came back to the airport, it crashed at the airport. Uh, they, they, they survived. There's no deaths in the crash, but they had some serious injuries. Uh, uh, her leg was injured, and I, you can ask them later for the full details, but they've asked to, for us to remember them in prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we, we thank you so much for your love, and we thank you for your grace and your mercy and your watch care. We thank you that Andrea and uh, Phil were, were not uh, uh, killed in this terrible crash and, and that your uh, hand was watching over them. We ask that you will continue to watch over their recovery and uh, bring about the healing that their bodies and minds and hearts need and that ultimately the outcome of this will uh, continue to serve your plan for their lives. We ask that you will be with us today, that as we study, we will go closer to you and have greater discernment into how you're working in the events of this world and how we can participate to fulfill your purpose. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. So we're doing lesson two in the new quarterly, managing the, the, for the master till he comes, and the title is God's Covenants with Us. And I emphasize the plurality of that because the title suggests by putting an S, God's Covenants with Us, it's suggesting there's more than one. And, do you th- and, and I think that's a common idea. And I, I looked on, on the internet, I, I looked up, you know, God's covenants in Bible. And most uh, very quickly, uh, if you can look at that on the website, Christian websites will, will list a, a list of them. And here's a, a common list that is listed, the Noah covenant. And you're familiar with that one. We're going to talk some about that. The Noah covenant, uh, which is, of course, the rainbow in the sky and the earth will not be destroyed by, by a great flood again. The Abrahamic covenant, uh, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant. Uh, Are there actually multiple covenants between God and humanity, or is there only one covenant? Multiple covenants, one covenant. And all the others that we think of as different covenants are merely the outworking, advancement, development of the one covenant. Does it make a difference whether we see multiple covenants or one covenant that is being developed and advanced in multiple places? What do you think? Multiple covenants, one covenant? One covenant. One covenant. Many people say one. And does it make a difference? What difference? If we, if we say there's one that is being advanced or developed, does that make a difference in how we understand God his character, what's transpiring, versus if we see multiple different covenants. So think of this. When we think of the sin problem and God's solution for it, how many sin problems are there? How many human species have fallen into sin? Species. How many solutions are there to the sin problem for the human species? There's one species... God created all human beings were created in Adam, and we're all an extension of Adam, and we all have the same sin problem inherited from Adam, and Jesus Christ became the second Adam. This truth would suggest that there's one covenant, one plan, one remedy, one sin problem, one human species, one solution. And in Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, the Bible says, there is one body and one spirit, just as there is one hope, to which God has called you. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. There is one God and Father of all, who is Lord of all, works through all, and is in all. This perspective would cause us to read the Bible as a whole. This idea of this, this unity. The Bible is a single truth with a single story being told, not a bunch of different problems being solved with different solutions. And it's the after man fell into sin, Genesis 3.15, right there in Eden, God promises a Messiah. This, the seed of the woman is going to come and crush the serpent's head. The rest of the scripture is the outworking of that promise. 
And the rest of these other agreements, covenants, whatever you want to call them, are the advancement or the interventions to complete that promise. For instance, the covenant to Noah was to keep open the avenue for Messiah to fulfill the promise. Because if Noah doesn't uh, survive, okay, he was the only righteous man left on the earth. The whole rest of the world was already hardened against God. Nobody's working. So that covenant was to keep open the avenue for the fulfillment of the Genesis 3.15 covenant. The covenant to Abraham focused and our attention down on the one branch of the human family through which that promise would be realized. The Mosaic covenant focused our attention even uh, closer uh, down and uh, also added the educational system to teach the plan and the inspired writings to contain these truths to evangelize the world about the plan. Uh, The Davidic covenant focused down further through the line of David, not just the line of um, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but now through the line of David, and that the Messiah was going to become the ruler of a new kingdom. And then the new covenant is the application into the hearts and the minds of the people of the covenant of grace, which was promised in Genesis 3.15. If we fail to view the word as a whole, if we instead break it up into all these different covenants and solutions going on, then we end up actually causing confusion and perhaps teaching contradictory things about the plan of salvation. For instance, if we break it up into different covenants, then we have an Old Testament of law and a covenant of law in which salvation was achieved through animal sacrifice which is actually taught in many circles of Christianity. But the New Testament is a covenant of grace in which salvation is achieved through Jesus. And we have two different paths. And if we break it up, then we can teach that genetics and genetic inheritance through Abraham causes a, a, a one path to salvation, and, and the other path is through faith in Jesus. And it's very commonly taught that genetic descendants of Abraham will have a new opportunity in the future for a different path of salvation than the Christian world. Satan wants to fragment scripture into its little bits and pieces, a little here, a little there, this text, that text, because doing so causes confusion. And right now, last date I saw, there's 44,000 different Christian groups all claiming the Bible supports what they teach. How can 44,000 different groups, 44,000 different groups claim the same source material supports their view? Little here, little there, this text, that text, and not seeing the totality of all of it harmonizing together into a single thread of truth. When we recognize a larger view, the idea of the sin problem that began in heaven and spread to earth, we see the Bible as a single story with a central theme And all the pieces have to connect to that theme. So with that in mind, I want you to consider a couple of quotes from one of the founders of the Adventist church. And I want you to consider if you agree or disagree. You shouldn't believe somebody just something just because somebody wrote it, regardless of who wrote it. The Bible says in Romans 14, every person should be fully persuaded in their own mind. So see if you agree or disagree. And then if you do agree, see if this is how you have experienced it being taught in your Christian upbringing, in your church. This is first one. There's three quotes I'm going to go over. First one is Fundamentals of Christian Education, page 403. Blessed be, and it starts with quoting Ephesians 1, 3 through 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Now the quote. Before the foundation of the earth were laid, the covenant was made that all who were obedient, all who should be all who should, through the abundant grace provided, become holy in character and without blame before God by appropriating the grace should be children of God. This covenant made from eternity was given to Abraham hundreds of years before Christ Christ came. So this author is connecting the covenant of grace in the eternal wisdom of God with the covenant of Abraham. They're not different covenants. Next quote. This is out of uh, God's Amazing Grace 129. 
And it quotes starting with 2 Timothy 1.9. Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. The purpose and plan of grace existed from all eternity. Before the foundation of the world, it was according to the determinate counsel of God that man should be created, endowed with power to do the divine will. But the defection of man, with all its consequences, was not hidden from the omnipotent. And yet it did not deter him from carrying out his eternal purpose. For the Lord would establish his throne in righteousness. God knows that the, the end from the beginning. Therefore, redemption was not an afterthought, but an eternal purpose to be wrought out for the blessing, not only of this atom of a world, but for the good of all the worlds which God has created. The creation of this world, the mystery of the gospel, are for one purpose, to make manifest to all created intelligences through nature and through Christ, the glories of the divine character. By the marvelous display of his love in giving his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life, the glory of God was revealed to lost humanity and to the intelligences of other worlds. The terms of this oneness between God and man in the great, in the great covenant of redemption were arranged with Christ from all eternity. The covenant of grace was revealed to the patriarchs. The covenant made with Abraham was the covenant confirmed by God in Christ, the very same gospel which is preached to us. Again, one, just just what I quoted out of Ephesians, one human race, one body, one spirit, one baptism, one sin problem, one solution, one God, one covenant. I'm going to skip the next one. You can find it in the notes or Amazing Grace, page 133, uh, just describing the same thing in a different way, that the covenant of grace was the covenant given to Abraham. The first paragraph of the lesson states the following. Amazingly enough, God has made contracts, parentheses, covenants, with us, unquote. God has made contracts, parentheses, covenants, with us. That's a quote. When you hear the word contract, does it lead your mind or tempt your mind to think of something legal? Yes. Yes. Are there other ways to think of contracts that are not legal or covenants that are not legal? Promises. But promises can be just one-sided contract takes an agreement of two. So how about instead of we say contract, if we put out there the covenant as an agreement? If you have an agreement with somebody, do you think something legal? No. Two people have made an agreement. So another way rather than contract could be agreement. No, but this lesson brings out that the covenant of the rainbow. Right. But I've never heard it called a covenant. I've always heard it called a promise. Right. And so, and so that, that's where we have to define our covenants, promises of God that he does, or our covenants, agreements that take two. And, and you can define it either way or both. And then we have to decide if it does mean both, because words can mean more than one thing. Then in the context, are we talking about something God is just going to do regardless of our response? Are we talking about, for instance, the idea of salvation? God committed himself in Christ to become our savior, irrespective of our response. Yet he still needed our cooperation. Why? Because he had to be born of a woman. He had to be born of the species. He had to have a willing woman who without divine rape. Divine what? Rape. In other words, rape is forcible impregnation against a woman's will. Without that. He had to have a righteous woman who would be voluntarily willing to be the host for the baby Jesus in order for the plan of salvation. So while he did it from his side, he still needed cooperation from at least one woman, didn't he? And that's why what we saw at the flood. That's why the therapeutic action to 
put to sleep all the antediluvians because at that point in human history, there's only one righteous man left on the whole planet, only one person willing to work with God. The avenue is almost closed. If Satan can get rid of that family, the plan of salvation is done. So God acted therapeutically to keep open the avenue. So contracts, uh, agreements, another way is agreement. And agreements don't have to be legal. They can actually be actual cause and effect, design law, how reality functions. But if we put the legal connotation on it, then we actually introduce ideas that corrupt what God's trying to do. But the idea of contract comes from many places. One is Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. The word translated substance is hypostasis. Uh, and in ancient non-biblical papyrus documents, they have found this word, this exact word, used for the various legal contracts and agreements businesses entered into. And therefore, because this word was used in a non-biblical, outside-the-Bible setting, in human customs, as legal contracts, those who prefer the legal lens use that use of the word as proof that the covenant with God is a legal contract and the plan of salvation is a legal process. So you should be familiar with that so you can refute it. It is true that saving faith is a trust transaction with God between the sinner and God, a bond of intelligent, functional understanding, a loyal devotion and confidence in God, but it's not a legal process. The word substance, hypostasis, first half hypo, as in hypoglycemia or hypotensive, it means low or under. It was translated into sub, as in subway, or um, subterranean, meaning low or under. The last half, um, stasis, means standing. And so it was translated into substance, stance, take a stand, stand, standing. And translated in English, faith is our understanding of things hoped for. And the understanding has two definitions or two meanings and both apply to our faith. The first meaning is that faith is our understanding of God and the truth and the situation, our comprehension and awareness of what's happening. We have to understand the truth to be set free from the lies. And once we understand the truth and are set free from the lies, then we enter into an understanding with God. We have to have an understanding of God, that he's trustworthy, our condition, our situation. And in that understanding, we enter into an understanding with God. And what's the understanding we enter to with God? What's that understanding? That I surrender my life to you, God, and you will fix the damage and brokenness. That's the understanding. I understand I can't fix it. I understand I'm sick and terminal and sin. I understand I need a clean heart and right spirit. And I understand through Jesus you've provided the remedy. And I enter into it, and I trust you, and I understand you're trustworthy. So I surrender to you. And I understand as long as I stay faithful and loyal to you, you will stay faithful and loyal to me. And so, this understanding with God is a covenant transaction, not a legal transaction, just like a marriage covenant as God designed before the states got involved. The states made things legal. Marriage predates human legalities. And as God designed, a marriage covenant is a commitment to be faithful, loyal, devoted to one another, forsaking all previous and other future potential love interests. They commit to go uh, to each other and work together through the difficulties, overcome any obstacles, and not to betray the best interest of the other. That's the agreement, isn't it? That's the covenant. As sinners, we're unable to promise our spouses that we will never make mistakes. 
I've never been to one. I promise I'll never make a mistake that from the day I marry you. <laughs> that's, not the, that's not the covenant. No, rather we promise that when we do make mistakes, we will work through them together. That despite the mistakes, we will stay faithful, honest, loyal, own up to our shortcomings, repent when it's necessary, and seek to do better, to grow and develop. I can tell you that Christy has really polished me over the years. (laughs) I'm a better person because of our covenant relationship. The covenant of marriage is symbolic of our faith relationship with God, which is an agreement known as the covenant of grace. In the covenant of grace, we have an understanding that God is love, that he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, not to condemn it, but to redeem it. We have an understanding that we cannot heal and save ourselves, so we enter an understanding with God, and this is what we say to God. God, because of all you have done through Jesus, all the evidence you have revealed about your trustworthiness, I am one over to you. I trust you and surrender myself to you, and I know that you will heal my heart and mind from sin. Going forward, I will honor you by cooperating with you and following your instructions. I know that you are always faithful to me, Lord. Now I choose to be faithful to you. I give you my heart, my mind, my soul, my strength. In the life I now live, I live to honor and bring glory to you. In good times and in bad, it is you, Lord, that I cling to. It is you that I will faithfully run to. It is you that I will always seek. For you and I are now one, just as Jesus and you are one. That's the covenant. That's not legal. That's actual. It's like a marriage covenant. Jesus is the groom, and his people are the bride. And the faithful bride is not a sinless people. They are, are sinners that have died to the old way and have been reborn with the principles of God woven into their hearts such that they have new desires and new motives. And even though they may make mistakes, they run to Jesus in repentance and sorrow, experience his grace, and mature and grow up over time. This is the agreement, the contract, the covenant that we have with God. This is not legal, but it's a union. Hearts woven together. Any questions about that? Yeah. Isn't it beautiful? Yes. The lesson cites another promise. Now we're going to get into some controversy. <laughs> but it's controversy we need. So that because minds, I'm telling you, minds, people in your families, people in your communities are being really deceived in the world today. But this is the promise. The lesson cites another promise from God at, given after the flood. And we're all familiar with the big promise of not to destroy the world by water again and the rainbow put into the sky. We're not going to talk about that one. That, one, that, one, that one's pretty straightforward. There was another one given after the flood, though. And you can find it in Genesis 8.22. And this is what it says. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. Uh-oh. Hmm. That's called climate change. Yeah. <laughs> this is my point, guys. Do you believe this promise? Do you believe the word of God? Is there an imp- implication for what is being foisted off on people today in the world? The worldwide climate change message is an anti-biblical, anti-God message. Amen. It denies the promise of God. Were you aware of that promise? No. no. Check me out. Look it up. If you believe the promise that God will not destroy the world again with the flood and you see the rainbow, this was given at the same time. So we have the religion of the Bible. We have the promise of our creator. The one who built the laws of nature that govern the weather and the climate. And the sustainer, the Bible tells us, he sustains all these things. And he has promised that these seasons and climate and hot and cold will not change until the earth is made new. Do we have another religion being preached today? A competitive religion. Do we find that various political and other powers in the world are constantly harping the message of climate disaster, climate change, to advance various policies, but they all come from a godless worldview? Is that promise telling us that there were seasons before the flood, that time, early time, that time?
So I, I don't know if that promise, because that was not stated before, but it's clearly stated since the flood that these seasons will continue until the end. What is the impact upon people of the messaging and idea of climate change? Does that messaging inspire people with hope? No. Does it reduce fear? No. Does it bring people together in love? Does it result in greater freedom and liberties in society? Or does it result in more fear, more conflict, less hope, greater restrictions of liberty, more coercion, more control? Uh, Just look at the impact of the messaging, folks. It is not a message of the Holy Spirit or the Bible. It is exactly the opposite. Understand why we're facing the world today. We are not facing a global climate crisis. We are facing a global spiritual crisis. We are not facing man-made global warming. We are facing man-made global coldness of heart. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 12, Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. That's what's happening in the world. Hearts are hardening. People are becoming cold. Love is being destroyed in our communities. Factionalism is being driven. Pitting people against people with fear and jealousy. Conflict is rising. Satan blinds people to the reality of getting, by getting them to focus on something emotional as a distraction to understand what's actually happening. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, it says, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Do you understand? You will not find the gospel of Jesus Christ in the common media space out there in the world today. It's the exact opposite. And look at the various philosophies dominating the world in academia, in medicine. I'm going to tell you, medicine in, in America, I don't know about the rest of the world, I can't speak to where it's happened, but it's corrupt. Absolutely. It is absolutely corrupt. It's corrupt on multiple layers. It is, it, is, it is driven by greed, corporate interests, and it's getting worse. There, there are many good-hearted people that have gone into the healing arts, but they are being chewed up by pressures and systems they don't even recognize anymore. What you find happening in many places in medical decision-making today is algorithmic, organized, prescribed treatment protocols that practitioners are locked into and can't even think their way out of anymore. The historic idea of, a, of an educated medical practitioner assessing, diagnosing, and using their God-given critical judgment to bring out the therapeutic interventions that are designed to remedy disease is replaced with industry-standardized, money-generating chronic disease management rather than wellness promotion. And there's never even a question about it. And if you question it, well, your status might be. Your status, your privileges. It's corrupt. The philosophies dominating the world are all, all of them dominating the world are rooted in godless evolutionism. All of them. Global warming or climate change, the green movement, comes out of a godless worldview, does not believe the promises of the Bible like the one I just showed you, does not believe in a future in which Jesus returns and recreates this earth anew. The future of the climate movement is overpopulation and destruction of the planet and and a mass extinction event, and therefore we must act against human beings to reduce the population in order to save the species. And the populate and, and, and in the green climate movement, the planet is more important than the image bearers of God, the people made in the image of God. In the biblical worldview, 
Every human being is created with dignity and individuality uh, and abilities akin to that of their Redeemer, and they are to be image bearers, and we are to save souls, not the planet. Now, we're certainly not abusers, we're not exploiters, we're stewards of the planet. But we value people more than the inanimate matter. Worldly economics, as we discussed last week, capitalism versus socialism. They're driven by, particularly the socialistic view, but by, by godlessness. In, in the biblical worldview, we understand God is actually the owner of everything. He's the creator, and all things are his. And we are his stewards, that he puts resources into our hands for us to manage for the purpose of advancing his kingdom. Thus, we answer to God in the use of the resources put into our hands. We recognize him as the ultimate owner. Marxist and socialist philosophies identify ownership as evil, and therefore the state is to be the owner of everything. And the state replaces God as the one we are stewards for and responsible to, And this is why socialism never has made it in the Western societies as long as Christianity was dominant in the Western societies. And that's why socialism requires the destruction of Christian faith so that they can replace God in the hearts of people as the owners. And we find this happening. This is why socialism is moving. And then all the critical theories, critical race theory being one of the many critical theories, are based in godless evolutionism and the principles of socialism. And economic differences of the socialism tensions are replaced with power differences of oppressed and oppress, oppressor in various class distinctions and identified group distinctions. But the goals of these things are not the goals of elevating and restoring in people the image of God. It's actually quite the opposite. It's destroy. Notice if you... Pick any of the critical studies. Their agenda is to destroy the the heterosexual two-parent home and families. They want children raised by the state, and they believe that, in fact, two-parent traditional homes, regardless of skin color, a black two-parent heterosexual home raised in a Christian world in the critical race theory philosophy, that they are practicing whiteism. That's racist. And therefore, the children should be raised by the state. And therefore, the schools should educate the children on these godless philosophies, irrespective of what the parents want. So we should teach the the children gender fluidity and godless evolution. Even if the parents are teaching God-designed male-female relationships and creation, uh, the school recognizes all those teachings as racist and white because critical race theory teaches that's part of Protestant Christianity and whiteism and dominance, and therefore we must undermine that. And so that's why they teach this stuff in schools without parental approval and behind the parents' backs. Because parent, that, the parents and the two-parent home system is part of what needs to be overthrown. Satan's end time push is active and aggressive. The purpose and goal is to increase chaos, disorder, confusion, fear, uncertainty, so that people long for predictability, longing for predictability, for safety, for a safe space will welcome a totalitarian ruler who will make rules, enforce those rules, and make them feel safe. It's a setup for the beast of Revelation. That's right. The true Christian fights. We live in the world. We don't wage wars the world does. But we have weapons, and our weapons have divine power to demolish strongholds, it says. We fight, but we use the divine weapons given us by God with truth that we present in love while leaving people free. We do not coerce. We do not use propaganda. We do not restrict liberties. We do not mandate others do what we say. We do not collude and support philosophies and systems and institutions that are based on godlessness. We discern the difference between godless green movement that leads people away from Jesus 
and from fulfilling our responsibilities as his stewards. You know, one of the responsibilities that God gave Adam and Eve in Eden and that we as his stewards are supposed to do on this earth? Subdue it. Subdue it. Have dominion over it and subdue it. Meaning, we are to go out and terraform the planet. Make it more human-friendly without abusing it or exploiting it. We are to develop it. We are to build. That is a God-given responsibility. Do you understand the grieve movement is exactly opposite that? It does everything it can to make the earth less human-friendly. Why do you think it's so against fossil fuels? Do you think it actually has to do with pollution? It does not. That's its, that's its cover. That's its scam. That's its diversion. In reality, it has to do with making the earth less human-friendly. We value people more than the planet and realize that no matter how well we do as God's stewards in protecting and having dominion in a godly way, that this planet is still going to be destroyed and replaced with a much better one. Praise God. So do you remember the promise that God gave Noah after the flood that the seasons will continue? Don't buy into this garbage. Don't let the the worldly liars tell you. You know, it's interesting. Jesus says, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. You remember the days of Noah? Noah, and and notice how it's flipped in reverse. The word from God with Noah is, climate disaster is coming. That was the word. There's a great flood, and the climate is going to change, and a disaster is coming, and you better get on the boat or you're going to die in the disaster. And the pundits of the day preached what? No climate. He's a nut. That's not coming. After the climate disaster, God gave a promise that the seasons will continue until the end of time. There won't be another, the world will not be destroyed again by a flood. The climate disaster you don't need to worry about in the future. And the world is doing just the opposite. Climate disaster, folks, climate disaster. We have the same dynamic flipped now. But but, but where they're the same, God's word is being opposed by the world. Sunday's first paragraph says, The death of Christ on Calvary made salvation possible for every person who has ever lived and who ever will live. So that, that, that's a typo because I had to, so that should be live rather than life. Okay, that's a typo. Um, <clears throat> unlike the promise of the season, salvation is not unilateral. It is not given with, ev- with everyone Excuse me, it is not given to everyone regardless of what they do. The belief that everyone will be saved is called universalism. So let's make this very clear as we begin talking about the plan of salvation and what Christ had to achieve. After Adam sinned, there would be no human being that could experience eternal life without the sinless life, sacrificial death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was an absolute requirement for human salvation. And I'm going to say that affirmatively and clearly because I get accused all the time of, um, uh, by various people of saying that I don't believe in the atonement or the blood atonement or the sacrificial atonement. It's completely fraudulent. Um, and, and I like to put it this way. If I were to say, Jesus did not have to die in order for clothing manufacturers to learn how to dye cloth. That would be a true statement, wouldn't it? That, that was not. But is that the same thing, because I, I rule out that reason for the death, is that the same thing as saying Jesus didn't have to die for our salvation? It's not the same thing at all. So when I say Jesus does not have to die to pay a legal payment to his father to save us, that is not the same thing as saying Jesus didn't have to die for our salvation. Amen. And this is what happens when the people who hold the penal legal view and make the the sacrifice of Jesus, a legal interaction between him and his father to pay a legal debt to God, and you take that away, for them, they're like, well, then you don't believe that Jesus had to die. You don't believe in the blood sacrifice. You don't believe in the atonement that the Bible teaches. But we do. We just believe it the way the Bible teaches it, not the way Rome teaches it. Rome is the originator or, or the human governments of the world, and in Christianity it was Rome, but it goes, it goes way back before that. 
But the human governments make up rules and they enforce the rules with external enforcement. God creates reality and his laws are the laws upon which reality operate. Sin is lawlessness. It's being outside the laws upon which God himself has constructed life to exist. And the only result of that, the wages then is death. Sin when full grown brings forth death. Those who sow to the carnal nature from that nature reap destruction. You cannot have life outside the laws upon which God built life to operate. Once Adam sinned, this human species was out of harmony with life and only another human being could restore those principles back into us and none of us could do it. So Christ became human for the purpose of destroying the death principle that Adam put in us and restoring the life principle that comes from God into humanity. And that's basically the simplest way to say it. And that's why he had to do it. If you want some scripture for all this, there were several elements that had to be achieved by Christ for our salvation. First element, he had to destroy the lies that cause us to distrust God and win us back to trust. Had to do that. So Hebrews 2.14, since the children have flesh and blood, he, destroy, he too shared in their humanity. So by the, his death, he might destroy him who holds the power of death that is the devil. So Christ's death was necessary for some way to destroy the devil's power of death. What's his power? Remember John 8, excuse me, John 17, 3? Life eternal. This is life eternal. What's life eternal according to Jesus? Knowing God. Is knowing God knowing about God? No. No, knowing is that intimate covenant knowledge, like a husband and wife coming up, and they know each other. Adam knew his wife Eve. She conceived, okay? Knowing God, coming back into that intimate, loving, trust bond, that's life eternal, okay? That's what it means to have eternal life, knowing God. Then what would eternal death mean? Not knowing, Not knowing God. And Satan has the power of death, so what's his power? Keep us from knowing God. The lies, he's the father of God. The lies he tells about God that we believe that keep us broken and fragmented and apart from him, keep us out of unity. That's his power. Christ came to destroy his power. How did he destroy his power? You will know the truth, and the truth will free. That's right. And the truth about what? The truth about mathematics? No, the truth about God. That was, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Okay? And so this was the first thing he had to do. He had to destroy the lies to reveal the truth, to win us back to trust so that we would know him. Now, as far as the saving experience of the sinner goes, that's actually all that's needed for that sinner to experience salvation. It's not all God had to accomplish. It's not all Jesus had to accomplish. But that's all you, anybody that makes it over that hurdle, and they're one back into that faith relationship and know God and trust him, they experience salvation. But there's more that was needed on God's side of the equation to make that a reality. And here's how I give that metaphor. Imagine somebody who has... Um, let's say, endocarditis. Infection inside the heart. And they're dying. And let's say that person has a loving father who they trust, who's also a doctor. But their doctor doesn't have any remedy. Their dad has no remedy. Does their trust in their father result in their wellness? Let's say there's another doctor who actually has a remedy that will cure them but they believe that doctor is trying to poison them. So they don't trust him. They actually believe, maybe they're, they're, they're Jewish, and that, that guy's name's Mengele. Okay? Will the remedy they have work without the trust? No. No. Both are necessary. So step one... To save sinners, he had to displace all the distrust and win us back to trust. The kindness of God leads us to repentance. We're one back to trust. But he had to do more. He had to actually achieve a remedy that actually fixes the problem. And what is it that fixes the problem? It says in Hebrews 5, 9, once he was made perfect, he became the source of salvation for all who obey him. Once he was made perfect, wasn't he always perfect? Always sinless. That's right. Bible perfection is maturity. is maturity of character. Character cannot be created by God. God created Adam and Eve and Eden sinless. And they had to choose what type of character they would develop. Would they choose at the tree of knowledge of good and evil, not the tree of cognitive information? Remember, knowing is by experience. 
would they choose to know by experience loyalty, love, trust, faith, uh, assessing of the lies, rejecting them, and solidifying their character into the principles of God? Would they choose to know life, charge of knowledge good, and choose, choose no good? Or would they choose to know distrust, fear, selfishness, shame, guilt by choosing to disobey? What would they choose to know? They chose to know evil. And their characters developed along a corrupt line. And so Christ came as the second Adam, picking up humanity damaged by what Adam did and cleansing it, perfecting it. You see, in Jesus Christ, we have a unique human being. I don't know if you heard the term pre or post lapsarian. Pre or post lapsarian, lapse. Adam lapsed into sin. Okay, so is Jesus came, was his humanity on earth, when he lived here 30 years, was his, his humanity like Adam's before sin, pre-lapse, or after sin, post-lapse? That's a false question. It's a fake question. In other words, was his humanity like Adam's before Adam sinned, or was his humanity like ours after Adam sinned? It's a fake question. Uh, his humanity was unique. You see, Adam's humanity came out of dirt that God constructed into a body and breathed into his nostrils, the breath of life, and he became a sinless, perfect human being. Eve's humanity was taken from the side of a sinless human being, and she was also constructed in a sinless state. Your humanity and my humanity came from a sinful mother and a sinful father. The humanity of Jesus, did it come like Adam's? Did it come like Eve's? Did it come exactly like ours? No, Jesus had humanity from his mother, but his father was the Holy Spirit. So in Jesus, we have a human being who is capably attempted in every way, just like we are, yet without sin, Hebrews 2.14. And we are tempted, we're dragged away and enticed by our own evil desires, James 1. So he could experience the temptation like us, but because his Father's Holy Spirit, he had within him the capacity to resist and say no that we don't. Hmm. So he did have an advantage over us. He had an advantage over you and me. He did not have an advantage over Adam. And he did not come as second Tim Jennings. (laughs) He came as second Adam. And his only advantage is in those who are unconverted. So once we are converted, we receive a new heart and right spirit, and we have a war that goes on inside between our carnal temptations that tempt us and our spiritual nature that says no. Jesus lived that from birth, and he won the victory, and in every way was tempted just like we are yet without sin, and we are dragged away and attempted by our own evil desires. And in Jesus, his humanity, not just external temptation from Satan in the wilderness, his humanity tempted him to act in self-interest. In Gethsemane, he experienced powerful human emotions that came from him, his, his nature that he took through Mary. Anguishing. Father, if it's possible, my heart is overwhelming to the point of death. Let there be some other way, but not my will. But when the temptations came, he always overcame. No one can take my life. I will give it freely. And so he chose with his individuality, his human abilities, this is the point, his human abilities, he chose to say no to every temptation and to reestablish the principles of God's kingdom in the humanity that he took upon himself. And at the cross, he destroyed that infection and perfectly restored God's design for life into the humanity he took upon himself. And this is why he rose again. This is why he could predict it. Understand, God's laws are predictable. I can, how many of you can predict what will happen if I let go of this? Yeah. <laughs> Do you have the gift of prophecy? It's a future event. <laughs> you don't need it. it. You understand the laws. He understood. He could tell his disciples over, I'm going to go, I'm going to die, I'm going to rise again. Ellen White, you know, says he could not see through the portals of the tomb. He did not say that because he had prophetic future vision. He said it because he knew what he was going to accomplish. He was going to destroy the cause of death, and he was going to restore perfectly the basis of life. And he would rise again. And thus, he becomes the second Adam. And we are grafted into him as the vine. He's the vine. We're the branches. And through faith. And when we have that faith, the Holy Spirit takes what Christ achieves, reproduces it in us. We get new heart, new motive, new desire. No longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. We become partakers of 
the divine nature. And then we, at that point, Christ had no advantage over us. Yeah, but did he come as a second Adam? Or after he completed his life and was resurrected, then he was like the second Adam? No, he came as the second Adam to redeem the race from what Adam did to it. The second head of humanity. He came to fix or reverse or overcome the damage that Adam placed upon this race. So did he know that he came as the second Adam? Yes. Yes, this was his mission. What do you think? Do you see the cohesive beauty, how it all fits together? And this is why he said to his disciples, it's expedient for you that I leave. If I don't leave, the Spirit won't come. When the Spirit comes, he will not speak on his own. He'll speak only what he hears. He will take what is mine. He'll make it known to you. You see, the human species was saved in the singular person of Jesus Christ. As long as we have one panda alive, pandas are not extinct. Because Jesus became a real human and won the victory, there will always be a human being who lives eternally. The species was saved in the person of Jesus. Every other person, now the only question remains after his accomplishment, how many other specimens of the species will join him in the free offer he makes of his life that he will share with us? And that application of what he achieved in his own journey is made via the work of the Holy Spirit in our individual hearts and minds. The Holy Spirit makes effective in our hearts what Christ wrought out in his life. And this is why the Holy Spirit's under attack in various circles. This is why people want to deny the existence of the Holy Spirit. If there's no Holy Spirit, then we are most hopeless. It's the third member of the Godhead who makes effectual in the believer the victory of Christ. So it convicts of sin, longs, uh, gives us a desire for something better, renews and regenerates us in righteousness. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Monday's lesson, we'll probably end up closing on Monday's lesson. The lesson focuses on Israel as a chosen people. Do we agree that Israel, that the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were God's chosen people? For what? Tell the world, tell the world about God. Were they so as evangelists? Okay, I would agree. They that was that was part of their choosing to evangelize the world. That's right. Anything else? Were they chosen as for exclusive salvation? Mm-hmm. Meaning that, for instance, Ruth was a Moabitess, and we would believe that she experienced salvation. Right? Did she have to join Israel though? She did, she did, but, but did she have to do that? No. In other words, the avenue for salvation was joining Israel. No. 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 Rahab, Rahab also uh, a not, not a descendant of Abraham, but she experienced salvation, right? Yes. But she also joined Israel. Spiritually. So they were called for a purpose. You said evangelism. Were they called for exclusive salvation? No. No, no way. Anybody can have it. There, so, uh, evangelism I agree with, 100%. But is there actually something more important that without which evangelism is worthless? Say, say that? An avenue for Christ. An avenue for Christ. There it is. They were chosen. Remember the promised Abraham through your seed. The entire world will be blessed. So the promise of Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman is crushing the serpent's head. Jesus is the, is the promise. And through Jesus, all men are saved that are saved. And now when we get to the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we have narrowed down the various branches of the human family through which Messiah may come to this branch. of the. We don't have to worry about the Chinese or the American Indians or, or those. Not because God doesn't love them as far as the plan of salvation goes. It's because we now know through inspiration that the Messiah is coming through this branch of the family. So he called them to evangelize. Absolutely. To house the, the inspired writings, the scriptures that teach the plan of salvation in reality. But ultimately to be the avenue through whom Messiah was coming. Now, this is critical to understand. Understanding that enlightens you to the narrative and the focus of the Bible. Why does the Bible focus its lens where it focuses its lens? Why don't we have books on what's happening in China? Because the Bible is not about human history. It's not a human history book, even though it is historical. 
And what happens there really happened. What's recorded there is real historical people who did real stuff. But the reason the Bible uh, records it is we're outworking of the Genesis 3.15 promise. That's why the, the Bible lens focuses on that story arc. And Bible prophecies are on that same story arc. Now see, if we were taught this all along, we'd have much better understanding of the Bible. I've never heard this before your class. Has anybody else? So, in the book Education, there's a paragraph, I won't quote it exactly, but it, it goes something like this. The student should learn to view the word as a whole, comparing all the parts to the grand central theme. Yeah. And then begins the listing. The origin of the great controversy, the purpose of the creation of man, the fall, the plan of redemption, and so forth. The, the, all the various parts... How, in, how there are two, the two antagonistic principles that are vying for supremacy. How in every act of life, we are now choosing for or against. What is that paragraph describing? Hmm. Yeah. What I'm describing. Right. One grand central theme. But see, you're describing it like you make the Old Testament important. Where some people don't think in the Old Testament it was done away with. Correct. They do. It was not. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Wow. Back when, or when we first started, your question about multiple covenants, and my mind went to, if we believe that there were multiple different covenants, then that implies that God's mind can be changed, and his character can be changed, and if his mind and character can change, then his law can be changed. Right, right. So again, it just sows confusion. The idea that there's one covenant with multiple facets is, uh, is a much, uh, much better way to view things. Did... Israel, the, the people of God, fulfill their purpose and mission? No. 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 Um, so it depends, on, it depends on what we mean. Well, God intervened over and over and over again in history to protect a remnant through whom Messiah was eventually born. To the degree that they had a remnant survive to be the avenue through which Jesus was born... To that degree, they succeeded. But how about evangelizing the world? How about embracing the Savior and accepting him? How about teaching the truth of God's kingdom and principles? They were God's chosen. How about, how about being a... Um, receptacle's not quite the right word, but a, a place of safety where the scriptures could be maintained to ultimately distribute to the world. They did maintain the scriptures. Okay. Even though they misunderstood them, even though when they read them, they rejected the light that is the light in all men when he finally came, the actual inspired writings they, they, they held on to, and God would able to use them to be that resource the rest of us can have. Then we're blessed by those scriptures, aren't we? But they didn't embrace the mission. They didn't accept the gospel commission. They rejected the actual one who fulfilled the promises that had been given. And they taught a perversion about biological inheritances through Abraham that gave them special privilege. And right before the crucifixion, Jesus did did something more than just condemn, you know, in John 8, he condemned their biological uh, identity as giving them privilege. When they claimed Abraham as their father, he said, you're of your father, the devil, because you look like Satan in character. And being a child of God means you bear the image of God. You reflect him. You look like him, just like our kids have our attributes that we, to be part of God's family, have been reborn to reveal his attributes. And if you haven't been reborn and you instead carry into the world the attributes of Satan, then you're recognized as a child of Satan. This is what he said in John 8. So their genetics didn't matter whose attributes and character you carry for. That is determinant. But then he goes further. In Matthew, uh, right before his crucifixion, and I'm not going to read it all to you, Matthew 23, he gives them the seven woes. Woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's face. You yourself do not enter, nor will you let those who enter, those enter who are trying to. Woe to you. He gives the seven woes. Woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over the land to win a single convert. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much the son of hell as you are. He, he, he lets them know not only does their genetics, their religion and their purpose as a people 
is rejected. Notice where he ends at the end. I won't go through them all, but he ends with this. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those who sent you, how often I have longed to gather you, your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Their house left to them desolate. Desolate of all redeeming and saving grace. The gospel left them. The mission of evangelists left them. They, now understand, genetics are meaningless. Anybody descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob can still experience salvation like any of us. They are no worse as individuals. So we're not talking about individual people. We don't condemn anybody for their race or ethnicity or any of that. No, we're not talking about that. Don't, Don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. I'm saying as an organized group carrying out gospel commission, that system is toast. God is not working to evangelize the world through that system anymore. And, and, and the, the gospel commission is going forward in all of those who are, have accepted Jesus Christ and allow the Holy Spirit to lead them in taking the true gospel forward. That's where God is working now. That's what I'm saying. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your love. We thank you that, that you are not a respecter of persons and our, our family history and genetics are inconsequential to you. We are all descended from Adam, born in sin, conceived in iniquity. But Jesus... Thank you that you came, took upon yourself uh, the burdens that, that, that we inherit and overcame and opened a new avenue to eternal life. You have won us to trust, Lord. We open our heart. We ask the Spirit to, to come to take your victories and achievements, reproduce it in us, and, and advance us in maturing to be like you, that we can be true image bearers of your kingdom in this world at this time. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Amen.